Thank you again, all of you, for coming. Um, I'm David Ward. Since it was a little noisy back there, and Mallory only repeated my name about 10 times. I'm David Ward, historian at the National Portrait Gallery, and I'd like to introduce you to a man that I spent a good part of my life studying, Charles Wilson Peale. Um, I've edited five volumes of Charles Wilson Peale's papers. I've wrote a biography about him. And amazingly enough, this is the first time I've ever given a talk at the National Portrait Gallery about Charles Wilson Peale, which may tell you something about our inability to prioritize abilities at, at the gallery. Um, why is this uh, figure appearing in a month where actually we're spotlighting Asian American portraits of encounter? Um, Peel, born 1741, dies 1827, an incredible career. 86 years old, artisan, inventor, museum keeper, naturalist, writer on health, politics, and science, revolutionary, statesman, patriarchal father with three wives and over 17 children who lived to adulthood. So you have here a figure of impressive bearing, a white man, a white man in a society in which white men ruled, a, society, a, a, a portrait, a self-portrait that's direct, clear, convincing, and in some senses, humane yet domineering, that he's staking a claim on our attention. So how does this match up with the more contingent show that we saw down the hall of Asian American portraits of encounter, recent artists who have come to America from the variety of countries in Asia and dealt with the fact that they're strangers in a strange land and how do they express that artistically? And what I want to do with Peel here tonight is to remind us of the fact that America was a colonial country. In 1741, when Peel was born, America, the, the society had been around for, as, a, as an English colony for about 110, 120 years. He reaches adulthood at about 160 years. And there's an interplay between the metropolitan, cosmopolitan world of London, the cosmopolitan world of England and its great country houses, its great riches as a colonial empire, uh, battening on to the, the raw resources of America. And for Peel, this was its own particular encounter, an encounter that he didn't play out so much in portraiture or in specific individual works of art, but in the course of his life. Because Peel, the figure that we see portrayed, self-portrayed so confidently, is a figure of immense contradictions, of immense strengths and, and immense weaknesses, weaknesses that he spent much of his life surmounting and overcoming. And the first weakness that he, that, that he evinces comes from his birth. He's the son of Charles Peel, namesake of Charles Peel, a convicted felon, transported from England under a sentence for death, commuted to a life of exile in the provinces of swampy Virginia. Um, we're not quite sure how he escaped the death penalty. He was convicted of forgery and embezzlement while working for the post office. He might have had friends for court, for in court. He had some influence, but he's sent into limbo. But for Charles Wilson, Charles Peel, with his, his aspirations of grandeur, his aspirations of wealth, was the never-never land of this colonial outback of Virginia. He, he survives until his mid-40s. He's a school teacher. He's perpetually dissatisfied. He's perpetually unhappy. He's perpetually angry. He dies when Charles Wilson Peel is eight years old. Peel describes himself in his autobiography as being orphaned, although his mother still lived. 
And the importance there of orphanage in the 18th century was the absence of the patriarch. The male figure disappears. Charles Wilson Peale is alone. He has very little formal education. His mother has moved to Annapolis by then. He starts life as an artisan. He's, he's handy. He's crafty. He's very good with, it, with, with hands, manual dexterity. He's able to make things. He has that great sense of American ingenuity that we see in people like Tom Paine or Eli Whitney. And he starts off as an artisan. He's a saddle maker. He's a watchmaker. He's a jack of all trades. But what he really wants to do is to be successful. He wants in some way to succeed in the way that his father failed. And he goes about it in exactly the wrong way in late 18th century America. He goes into a tremendous amount of debt. In order to get the in order to have the appearance of gentility, the appearance of property, he he takes out loans which he can't possibly pay back. He he takes out more loans and compounds the debt, and he's on the verge of failing. He's in the on the verge of becoming invisible. He's ending entering that period of social death in which status was derived by money, and in the South it was derived in, by by money and slaves. And Peel, at a certain point early in his life, has no prospect of either of those things. He looks to be disappearing. He marries. He marries well. It's a lifeline into the Brewer family of Maryland. He moves, he moves up in status through the social mobility of marriage. It still doesn't help him. And then he commits the first of his many cr social crimes and breakdowns. With his wife pregnant, he absconds. He leaves Maryland. He goes on the run. The sheriff is after him. He goes to Boston. At this point, he is starting to think about becoming a painter, but he's had no opportunity to exercise that. Painting in the 18th century becomes an almost an offshoot of artisanal skill, that you painted boats, you, if you painted signs. There are many American painters, including Peel, who did tavern signs, cobbler signs, and they moved into painting portraits. But Peel hasn't even gotten started yet when he, he ends up in Boston with the sheriff on his trail. He leads this long journey in which essentially he has a breakdown. While he's in Boston, he spends most of his time in bed. He gets himself to Virginia by selling his watch, his first great possession, which indicated his status, his control over his own time. Gets himself to Virginia, and then again, this element of luck, which like, like the Alger stories or Ben Franklin, pluck and luck combine so often. He meets a prominent Virginia land um, owner and judge, and he paints the couple's pictures. And from that initial patronage, the judge reestablishes contact with his Maryland um, relatives, the Maryland aristocracy, and Peel is allowed to go home. They work a deal where the seven or eight hundred pounds, and this is seven or eight hundred pounds in, in the 1760s is a ton of money. It's probably close to $50,000, $75,000 now. One of his relatives said, we must do something for Charles. And this is the beginning in which the period in which America is becoming materially successful enough that they could think about having good furniture, good silver, Paul, think of Paul Revere, and portraits which indicated their rise in status. And they come up with this very clever idea that they'll raise money and send Peel to England. And this is the point of the, that I'm trying to start with in terms of cultural um, conflict. They send Peel to England to train as a portrait painter in order that he will come back and paint them the rising men of America. Peel, of course, wants to be part of that crew, but he's not at the moment. He goes, they raise 80 pounds. They pay off his debt um, or work a deal where he pays it off over time. They raise 80 pounds, again, a considerable amount of money. 
And they sent him to England to two year, for two years to study with Benjamin West, the King's painter, an American painter who'd moved permanently to England and established the bona fides of American culture through his skill, both with the paintbrush and his skill with patronage in the King's court and in English society. West was phenomenally generous and habitually took in American painters as a, as a force of apprenticeship. But what happens to Peel again is not unlike what happened to him in Virginia. He has another breakdown. And the breakdown here is cultural. He sails up the harbor of the Thames, up to London, and he's blown away, literally, by, or figuratively, sorry, but he's blown away figuratively, because it would have been a short story if he'd been blown away literally, um, by, the, by the sheer quantity of English shipping. He suddenly arrives in the biggest town in Europe, the biggest town he's certainly ever seen, Annapolis, is a, is a little bird compared to London. And he describes the ships in the London pool in the, on the river as appearing as vast as a, as a, as a North Carolina forest. In other words, the, the wealth of America personified in its natural products becomes the realized products of English shipping. And Peel suffers a crisis of nerves. He can't, he's not skillful enough to paint the way Benjamin West painted, history painting, allegorical painting, stories derived from the Bible and mythology. Um, his patrons, in fact, don't really want that. What they want are portraits. And Peel almost immediately writes and says he's coming home. Um, and his patron, John Beale Bordley, Edmund Lloyd, the Charles Carroll barrister, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, they write him back and they say, no, you're not. No, you're not. We've paid you. You're in our employ. We, implicitly, we've been nice to you. You will go there you, and you will not paint miniatures. You will not paint history painting. You will paint portraits. You will learn to paint portraits. And Peel does. And Peel, and it, it's very rare for people to have a completely, to take a completely honest inventory of themselves, to self-scrutinize themselves. And this is the breakthrough for Peel. This is, although he would have subsequent problems and subsequent difficulties in his life. This is when Peel develops the trait of self-knowledge and self-awareness. And he looks at himself and he writes a very interesting letter where he says, I lack many things, but I don't lack application. That I can, with my, through my will, make a way in the world. That through my determination, I'm paraphrasing here, through my determination, I can become visible, that I can make myself known to my fellow men. He studies for two years with West. At the same time, he's radicalized by the growing colonial conflict, um, which is ramified. In, for England, America is always just a sort of little backwater, which is one of the reasons we won the revolution. The English weren't really paying attention. Um, and what Peel, as he's in English society, as he's dealing as a freeborn American, this element of cultural conflict between what was gestating in America and the colonial power that he encountered every day. He encountered it every time he had a sitter who was of the gentry of the minor aristocracy. It was constantly rubbed in his face that he was an inferior, and he becomes radicalized. He resolves he won't take his hat off when he sees the king pass by. He also resolves that he will wear homespun. When Peel had arrived in London, he spent a good part of his, his, his outlay um, on clothes. He bought a lot of fancy clothes as soon as he arrived in London. And by the end of his two years in, in 1769, he, he writes that he is determined now that he will only wear homespun. He will not patronize the English manufacturers. He will not support the empire. And he goes back 
to Maryland and establishes himself as the painter of the rising class that made the revolution. He makes himself vi visible in self-portraits like is this one in 1807. Peel, more than any other artist I know of, painted self-portraits. He painted almost as many as he had children. At least 15 extant ones, and several have been lost, and depending on how you count them, there may be more. And there's almost this psychological need to reassure himself that he was visible, that he was present, and that he was making progress in his life. And what Peel did was, again, very, in the same way that he was handy, he was also crafty. And he hitched himself to, and it was a genuine political sentiment on his part, on American independence. <coughs> he moves to Philadelphia in 1776, and he starts to paint the Continental Congress. He goes on to paint many portraits of Washington and the other, the other gentry. And I just want to close here by moving the element of aesthetics and rebounding against the colonial metropolitan power by contrasting three pictures. The, this Charles Wilson Peale self-portrait, that self-portrait by, by John Singleton Copley, and then I'm going to end by going around the corner by showing you one of the real masterpieces of Charles Wilson Peale. Just again, aesthetically, you look at this, the direct piercing eyes, the full light on his face, the, the, again, it's not necessarily homespun, but the plain olive furnishings, the simple neckerchief, and Peel, of course, the seat of reason in his head. Peel was balding, but he's still not wearing a wig. This is his hair. Peel would always show himself without a wig. Um, the eyes, the slight smile, the grim determination of his jaw. 1807, the beginning of the consolidation of the American Republic, the post-revolutionary period. But what you have here really is the honest American. Peel portraying himself as the honest democratic America. And you look at that, Copley, tremendously talented, brought up in Boston, precocious to a fault, goes to England, stays in England, doesn't get involved in any revolutionary politics. And you have a quintessential European painting here, which without being glib about it, looks like a pastry. Um, the breaststroke is unbelievably good. Look at the romantic pose. Oh, look, I'm languishing with love. And the tilt of the head, the soulful gaze. It's a portrait of sentiment. That's a portrait of action. This is a portrait of feeling, and it's expressed in the way that the two of them were painting. And in these two pictures, you have the American Revolution. You have that emerging self-confidence, which gets itself into the persona of Charles Wilson Peale and the thousands of others who supported the revolution. And this is the quintessential Tory, aristocratic, London, retrograde, soon-to-be-overthrown colonial power. And I just want to end, because Peale is my guy, I want to go around the corner and just end with this great portrait by John Dickinson, of John Dickinson by Peel. As you, one of the things about Peel in terms of his honesty, and you can see it in terms of the Copley. Copley is a master brushman. He's unbelievable. His technique is unbelievable. And, t and Peel, with his artisanal roots, is much more mechanistic. And a lot of his paintings, to be blunt, aren't really good. He painted them quickly. He painted them for a limit on a limited you know, uh, budget, a limited amount of time. But when he comes back from England resolved to paint, he said, I must make my countrymen my antiques. And what he meant by that was that he would make his contemporaries 
the equivalent of the classical heroes that West or Copley or others were painting. He was turning over, in the same way that America turned over imperial relations, he's turning over the established conventions of art and who you should paint. And he's becoming a painter of the rising political class, the rising mercantile and bourgeoisie class, and the rising political class. And he paints two great pictures when he comes back almost immediately. One's down at the National Gallery. It's of John Beale Bordley, who was Peel's patron in Annapolis, which is a good painting and it's fraught. It's loaded with political symbolism. But this is one of the first great American paintings. And it's John Dickinson, a man of moderation in the Revolution, neither a radical nor a Tory, a wealthy landowner, a gentleman, a farmer, practicing farmer. This is the falls of the Schuylkill River. He lived in between what's now Delaware and Philadelphia. You can see his house in the back. And Dickinson specifically asked him to include the American appeal to include the American landscape in this portrait. And what you have here is a, in, in this early pre-revolutionary portrait, a perfect picture of equipoise, that this is what America aspired to by creating the revolution, by in a sense purifying the constitution which they held to be corrupted of the English empire and returning to a stability that was founded in the land, founded in the harmony that you see expressed in, in Peel's wonderful face of Dickinson, is founded in, the, in the, the gentle grace in which, he in which Dickinson places himself in a landscape which he simultaneously owns, but also simultaneously informs him as an American. Thank you. Yes, Peel again, and this is again interesting in terms of the way that Peel made himself visible to the world. It's actually almost uncanny because Peel and his first wife, Rachel Brewer, were very unlucky in childbirth, as tended to happen in the late 18th century. They had four children who died in stillbirth or under a year. And they were all given names like James, William, Benjamin. And with Peel's fourth son, and he's already he's established himself by now as a painter, at least with the possibility of a career as a painter, and this is just unbelievable to me. His fourth son he names Raphael, after Raffaello, the great Renaissance Italian painter, the founder of modern painter, the founder developer of perspective, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here you have somebody living in Annapolis, and he's had you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry as his first children. They've died. And the extent to which psychologically Peel is creating a hostage to fortune by naming a son Raphael, and he goes on to name the next son Rembrandt. He goes on to name the son, one other son Titian. When Peel switches to science around 1800, Peel comes out of the revolution and invents the modern natural history and art museum. Um, he starts to name children Benjamin Franklin and he names them after scientists. And it's uncanny. And again, I would argue that it's an element of Peel making himself visible of, of in, in Jack, when Jack Kennedy used the, the image for the space program, the, the, you throw your hat over the, the hedgerow, you had to go get it, no matter how high it was. Well, Peel, by naming his children after artists and after famous public figures, scientists, that meant he had to be successful. He couldn't fail. If he had a son named Raphael, it would look really awful if he was just ended up being the kind of town tavern keeper. You have a son named Rembrandt, you have to be successful as a painter. And the amazing thing is that they were. And you get this element of will. And it's no, Peel, it's again interesting to me, Peel's name, his family name was Wilson with one L. And at some point in his late 20s, Peel changes that to W-I-L-L, -L, 
will son. The element, again, of the absent father, the son who doesn't have the paternal, patriarchal, guiding figure to launch him into the world. The Peel has to make it through his own willpower. And the fact, and he never leaves an explanation for this, why does he change his name to Will, son? And it, again, this element of the uncanny creeping into the hard-headed life of Charles Wilson Peel is fairly amazing to me. No, but we get asked that a lot. I'm sure there's a distant one, but, uh, but no. Thanks very much, David. Thank you all very much. For